Well, there are two words that become quite prevalent at Christmas time, and those two words are joy and peace. And there's good reason for that. Those two words are, are vital to the Christian story. In fact, both of them occur in Luke's account of that first Christmas day. And so I want to read to you from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. And listen and hear those words in here. This is what Luke writes. He says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So you really can't talk about Christmas without bringing up these two words, of joy and peace. This morning, I want to focus on peace. We've already sung it today. In the very first song, Good Christian Men Rejoice, we sang, Now ye need, need not fear the grave, peace, peace, Jesus Christ was born to save. We'll sing it again at the very end today in the song. Well, uh, we were going to sing While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks, but we, we've had to change it. But even in all of these songs that we are singing here at Christmas, there's so much of it about peace. Think about the carol service. Um, how many of these Christmas songs have peace in it? Hark the herald angels sing, right? We sing peace on earth and mercy mild, or uh, O holy night. We sing his law is love and his gospel is peace. O little town of Bethlehem, we sing and peace to men on earth. And you can probably think of, of many more lyrics to many more Christmas songs that talk about peace. And that is good, and that is right, because that is what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds on that day. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. That's how the Christmas story begins. It begins with peace. And it shouldn't surprise us, hundreds of years before that event, in fact, roughly 700 years before that event, the prophet Isaiah penned these words in Isaiah 9, 6-7. He said, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And what is one of his names? What is one of the names of this child, this son? It is the Prince of Peace. And then move from 700 years beforehand to just a couple months before Jesus' birth. And John the Baptist is being born, and his father, Zechariah, prophesies that John will be a prophet of the Most High. And he says in uh, this prophecy, he says, quote, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So not only was it prophesied that Jesus would be a prince of peace and that he would guide people into peace? And not only did angels proclaim upon the earth peace when he was born, but this is also what Jesus taught how he lived and who he is for us. On the Sermon of, on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In James chapter 3, verse 18, we read, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And Paul even says that Jesus is our peace in Ephesians 2.14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. So peace was prophesied of Jesus, it was heralded about Jesus, it was taught by Jesus, it was embodied in Jesus, it was procured by Jesus. Why am I belaboring this point? Because often Jesus says things that are so counter-expectation and we don't realize it because we're so familiar with the story, we're so familiar with the Bible that it doesn't strike us as odd. So I emphasize all of that so that these words would indeed be like a slap across the face as I think it was intended by Jesus. Because in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34, Jesus says this about the reason for Christmas. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. We should read that and we should think, what? What are you saying? After all of that, how can you say you didn't come to bring peace? Here's how the rest of the text goes. So Matthew 10, 34 to 39, if you want to follow along. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Jesus is constantly subverting expectations. He's turning things upside down, not willy-nilly, not because he wants the attention, but because he's trying to make us think more deeply about who he is, what his mission is, and, and what this peace is that is constantly being referred to. This morning, we are just going to make our way through this text here in Matthew 10. And perhaps think about this Christmas event in a slightly different way. Now, I keep saying Christmas, but you may have missed it in there. But Christmas is in this text, right? Look at it again. In, in the very first verse there, Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, do not think that I have come. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. He's not talking about coming to this village or, or coming to have a chat with these disciples. He's talking about his purpose in coming to earth. He's talking about the Christmas event. Again, in verse 35, he says, for I have come. Right, there it is again. This, this section of Jesus' discourse is, is framed in terms of his purpose for coming. And notice that this is even brought into further focus at the end of that first sentence in verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Right, and by, by phrasing it that way, he's drawing our attention to the fact that his origin is not earthly, but heavenly. And that he has a specific mission on earth. And is this not exactly what we mean when we talk about Christmas? 
the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth in the person of Jesus for a purpose, for a mission. And what was this mission? He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so in light of everything we saw earlier, this peace has to be something different than the peace the angels proclaimed and the peace that Jesus taught than the peace that Jesus is. What kind of peace it is, we'll see in just a, a minute here. But there's something that Jesus does bring. He says, I haven't come to bring peace, but I am bringing something. He's bringing a sword. This is why I titled this sermon, The Violence of Christmas. Nativity scenes that you might put up in your house are generally some type of precious moment figurines where Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the sheep are all cute and cartoonish. But here Jesus says, I have come to bring a sword. Put a sword in baby Jesus' hand, and I bet you'll get a few guys come to hear that nativity scene. But is this sword for making war? I don't think so. This, this, this metaphorical sword that Jesus wields is for dividing. He is bringing a message that is going to divide people. His is not a message of peace at all costs. There will be peace, there will be unity, but there will also be division. And that is because what Jesus declares about himself, God, the kingdom of God, is so radical and demands such allegiance that you have to place your stake in the ground and proclaim, here I stand. And by necessity, that creates division. Just a few chapters previous to this, in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 13, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Faith in Christ, hoping in Christ, trusting in Christ puts one on a road separate from so many others. There are not different paths that all lead to the same end. One leads to death and hell and the other leads to life in Christ. The division is real and it is personal. This is what Jesus goes on to describe. He describes the way that this sword divides. And so first, he talks about this division of family. In uh, verses 35 to 36, we see that Jesus divides family members. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It starts with the closest relationships that we have, the very cornerstone of society with one's own family. Jesus repeats that he has a purpose in coming. He says, for I have come, and then he does what he, he often does, and that is he says something that on the surface we get. We understand what it means, right? We read that, we're like, all right, I get it. It's division in the family, but there's something more going on here. When Jesus says that he's come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household, he's drawing from the Old Testament. You know, throughout the 
the Genesis series and really in everything that I, I preach and teach, I want you to see that we cannot be New Testament Christians only. We can't be. We have to be whole Bible Christians. The New Testament is just dripping with thoughts and patterns and images that come directly from the Old Testament. So where does this come from? Well, Les read it a little while ago. It comes from the prophet Micah in Micah 7. Let me read to you again from Micah chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And so Micah looks around and he sees the total collapse of society. There are none who are upright. People are hunting each other. The day of judgment is at hand. Judah is not following after the Lord, so Michael, Micah warns the people, don't put your confidence even in your friends. They're lying to you. Even family members can't be trusted if they've abandoned God. Then in verse 7 of Micah 7, he says this, But as for me, I will look to Yahweh, I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jesus is drawing from this context. Micah says, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jesus is this Yahweh. Come in the flesh. He has come, but Israel is rejecting them. They, like, like Judah in Micah's day, have turned their backs on God. Judgment will come to Judah because they've turned from Yahweh. And so judgment will come to all Israel because of their rejection of Jesus, who is Yahweh incarnate. Stephen Dempster writes this, quote, The coming of Jesus forced people to make ultimate decisions that cause inevitable divisions. And these divisions occur at the family level. This does not mean that you should then go and get a shovel and try to widen the divide. That's not what that means. The division is inevitable. It is an inevitable outcome of saying, Christ is my Lord. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the, all the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about this summer, that is how you deal with that divide. But the divide is there, and it divides right at the core of the family. But not only does the sword of Jesus divide family members, but it divides loyalty. Indeed, that is, that is why there is division within the family. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, a long time ago when I lived in the U.S., I saw a car that had a bumper sticker on it. Uh, bumper stickers aren't really a thing here. I think I maybe only have seen them with uh, companies or advertisements. But the bumper sticker on the back of this car read, Christian Family Values, Matthew 10, 37. And this is that verse. 
And while the person who put that bumper sticker on their car probably thought it was a gotcha moment, like, see, Christians, how bad you are. You're saying you, you have to love Jesus more than your father and mother. What that person didn't realize was that in the broader context, he was proving the very point that Jesus was making. Jesus comes into the world. Yahweh himself became a man in the person of Jesus as a king from another and greater kingdom. And he lays claim to every human heart. And he says, I am worthy of greater allegiance than even to your own family. I am worthy of greater affection than even that which you have for your parents or your children. I am worthy of greater love than even your closest blood relatives. Now, for any mere man to say that would be foolishness, right? We would, we would think that person is a lunatic to use C.S. Lewis's categories. But Jesus is not just a man. He is the God-man. He is Yahweh come in the flesh. He indeed must have our highest allegiance. He must have the prime seat of our affections. We must love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and being because he is God and any other person who holds that spot will become an idol for us and they will fall. So Jesus divides loyalty and he divides it within families but the ramifications only extend outward from there. If loyalties are divided within family, then they will be at work. They will be in school, with politics, with the state. Your ultimate loyalty is not even to this church or to me. It is to Christ. If I start teaching a gospel contrary to what the Bible teaches, you either get rid of me or you abandon the church. When your job says success, no matter the cost, your allegiance lies with us. You say, no, it doesn't. My allegiance is to Christ, and I'm not measured by success, but by faithfulness. When the state, the government, demands total allegiance and declares you are either with us or against us, you have to say, my allegiance is to Christ. And while it may be more subtle forms, this is what the government is doing right now. By demanding you think and speak in a certain way, they are demanding your allegiance. How are they doing this? Well, as Fran brought up a little while ago, by trying to pass this hate speech bill. Here's how, here's how hatred is defined in this bill. You can go read the whole thing online. Here's how they define it. Hatred means hatred against a person or group of persons in the state or elsewhere on account of their protected characteristics or any, of, any one of those characteristics. You know, in my Greek classes, we have to take very long and complex sentences and break them down. And I always ask my students, what is the basic sentence that everything else hangs off of? You know, you've got your subject, verb, object. What's that little sentence that everything else hangs off of? When we look at what they, their definition is, here's the basic sentence. Hatred is hatred. That is a semantically null definition, right? It doesn't mean anything because it's not a definition. But if you don't define it, then you can make anything hate. And you can demand people now conform their thinking and speaking to what you want out of fear of prosecution. 
While this may be a, a more f- subtle form of the demand of allegiance, this is not something new, though. The early Christians faced this very thing. To prove their allegiance to the Roman Empire, to the Caesar, and to show that they were good citizens, everyone, including Christians, were required to offer a pinch of incense and to say, Caesar is Lord. The historian Bruce L. Shelley writes this, quote, Thus we see that Caesar worship was primarily a test of political loyalty. It was a test of whether or not a man was a good citizen. If a man refused to carry out the ceremony of acknowledging Caesar, he was automatically branded as a traitor and a revolutionary. He goes on to write, For the Christian, Jesus Christ and he alone was Lord. To the Roman, the Christian seemed utterly intolerant and insanely stubborn. Worse, he was a self-confessed disloyal citizen. That is why Rome regarded them as a band of potential revolutionaries threatening the very existence of the empire. Like a lot of those words are words that are being used today. And so what was Rome's response? It's persecution. It's persecution. And that leads us to the last thing that this sword divides, which is kingdoms. Look at verse 38 to 39. This is what Jesus says. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is, this, the, the imagery of taking one's cross comes from the Roman custom of having condemned criminals, and not just criminals like, oh, they went and stole an apple, but these were rebels, traitors. They were revolutionaries, people who were going against the government. They had to carry their cross to the place where they were going to die, not unlike Jesus would do in just a little bit of time. And so Jesus is saying, your allegiance to me may cost you your life, but I am worthy of it. If you want to follow me, this is what awaits. That is a radical statement. That's a radical statement. And if that weren't enough, Jesus finishes by saying, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. There is a way to live now that brings great success and wealth and comfort and ease of life. Who cares if you have to say Caesar is Lord as long as you get to go home and then do whatever you want? But living a lie eats at your soul. You may have a nice life now, but you will lose it in the end. But for those who take up the cross for the sake of Jesus, not because they're crusaders, who want to start a fight, but because they are being faithful to their king, they may lose their life, but they will find that life was far more than just this present vapor. Christ said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. There is is violence in that first Christmas day. Because in the coming of Christ, alliances were made and divisions were established between family members, amongst co-workers, between loyalty to the state. It was not peace at all costs. Well, let me make just a few applications, then we'll close. First, there is a presupposition that is kind of the driving undercurrent of everything said here in this text. And that is outward confession. Christ can't divide families and school and job and state if no one knows. 
It should be evident that you are a Christian. When your family or friends say, you know what, we should go do this or or that, which you know is against what God has called you to do, you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't. My loyalty is to King Jesus. The sword only divides when Christ is truly your king and you live your public life in such a way that reflects that. Second, how then can Christmas be about peace? Right, that's what the angel said. They announced at Christ's birth glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. How can it be about peace and at the same time not be about peace? The answer is because these are two different peace. The peace that Jesus speaks of here in Matthew 10 is an artificial peace. It's just, we'll all just get along and love each other, but we'll remain at war with God. Christ did not come so that nations would be at peace but still fight against God. Christmas did not happen so that you would have a better relationship with your parents while you continue to live in sin. All of that is an artificial peace. A ceasefire is not peace. There is a different type of peace that Christ came to bring. And what was that? Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring a peace that the world desperately needs. As sinners, we are at enmity with God. We're we're fighting against him. Paul says in Romans 8, 7 to 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if we are found battling against God, we are on the wrong side because we will lose. There has to be a way to be reconciled. There has to be a way to have peace with God. Again, Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, it is by faith alone. It is trusting and believing and clinging to Jesus on the cross. It is by valuing him, treasuring him and loving him above all else in this world. It is by believing that in his death, he has borne your sin on his body so that you now stand guilt-free before God justified declared not guilty so that there is actual peace between you and God. It's great that families get together on Christmas, that friends get together and enjoy each other's company. That is a wonderful and amazing thing. But Christmas has never been about an artificial peace and just momentary unity. That kind of peace Jesus did not come to bring. What he came to bring was true peace reconciliation between sinful humanity and a holy God. That is an eternal peace, and that is the foundation of any truly meaningful peace on this earth. And the only way that that comes about, the only way is by trusting in the one whom Paul said is our peace, by trusting in Jesus himself. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
we do pray that you would help every person in this room to know the peace that Christ did bring. That we would recognize that we can be reconciled to the living God, but we must trust in Jesus. We must believe, we must place our stake on the side of Christ and say, he is our king, knowing that that will cause division with the rest of the world. Whether it be our family members, co-workers, school friends, the state. Lord, let us not live in such a way as to think it must be peace at all costs. But let us live to show that we value Christ above all else. May we be prepared to take up our cross and to follow him. Knowing that whatever battles might wage on this earth, we have peace with God. That is an eternal peace that can't be taken away from us. Help us to honor you, Lord, and to live in light of that fact. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.